0: I just found out about the garage sale on at Blue Star. Why? <sighs> Last night I was reading Rudy the story of Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Pot. You know what happened? He stuck his nose in the pot once too often. And, uh, he got stuck. Maybe you ought to read him Pinocchio, Gordon. I thought that you were going to turn Blue Star around, not upside down. Well, you're walking around blind out of cane, pal. <laughs> fool and his money are lucky enough to get together in the first place. But why do you need to wreck this company? Because it's wreckable, all right? I took another look at it, and I changed my mind. If these people lose their jobs, they got nowhere to go. My father has worked there for 24 years. I gave him my word. It's all about bucks, kid. The rest is conversation. Hey, buddy, you're still going to be president, all right? And when the time comes, you're going to parachute out a rich man. With the money you're going to make, your dad's never going to have to work another day in his life. So tell me, Gordon, when does it all end, huh? How many yachts can you water ski behind? How much is enough? It's not a question of enough, pal. It's a zero-sum game. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Money itself isn't lost or made. It's simply uh, transferred from one perception to another. Like magic. This painting here bought it 10 years ago for $60,000. I could sell it today for $600. The illusion has become real. And the more real it becomes, the more desperate they want it. Captain is at its finest. How awesome. much is enough for it?
1: Well, I love the concept of that song. When you think about the, the things you're devoted to, the ways you're spending your life... Is your life devoted to things that really matter? Or ultimately, is it just, you know, paper and fire just burning up and and you're wasting time not making the most of it? Today in our self-portrait series, we've been looking at different things that take away from our life as we paint ourselves a certain way, and things that restore the portraits of who we were made to be. And today we're talking about greed, the idea that how many times do we get really, really anxious over things? circumstances situations and then like a month later a year later we don't even remember what it was it's just paper and fire we're just like why was i so worried about that i had a friend that uh, told me a story that he was reading years ago It was in 2008 There was a philanthropist out on the west coast who was really known for being a follower of jesus known for giving away lavish amounts of generosity just lavish amounts of money to all kinds of causes religious and otherwise And when 2008 hit, you know, personal wealth drop, business wealth drop, stock drop, all public knowledge, you know, huge loss. And a news reporter asked him, he said, now that you've had this huge personal loss, do you wish maybe you could go back and take back some of that money that you gave away? And without even a beat, he said, no, I didn't lose any of the money I gave away. I only lost the money I kept. Fascinating. I had another friend who's a philanthropist. He just loves to sort of wrestle with ways he can be generous, ways he can be involved. And in. I said, What's sort of your philosophy that drives you? He said, I do my, my giving while I'm living, so I'm knowing where it's going. He said, I could put them into trusts and and things that are going to be given away when I'm gone, but I want to be part of the joy of seeing where the money's going and be part of impacting things and changing things in the world I live in today. Pretty fascinating. Because at some point, the things we worry about and achieve will be gone, and at some point, we'll be gone. So what does it look like for you and I to build a life, not based on paper and fire, but based on things that really last and really matter? in the life we have to, to live. So again, think of all the things we spend so much time on that are eventually going to be gone. They're, they're temporal. There's a fascinating uh, interview between Donahue, of all people, and Milton Friedman back in the 80s. And Donahue begins the conversation by saying, with all of the haves and all of the have-nots, Milton Friedman, do you you not at least have a a minuscule of doubt about capitalism and a society running on power and greed? Real tense moment. Milton Friedman, the, the apologist for free enterprise, turns to him and says, well, what is greed anyway? Of course, it's always the other guy who's greedy, right? It's never us. Do you know of any society you're comparing capitalism to socialism? Do you think Marxism doesn't run on greed? Do you think socialism doesn't run on greed? Do you think Russia or China doesn't run on greed? Anyone in built a case for free enterprise that is not motivated by greed as much as self-interest. I want to make a profit. I want to provide for myself. But to do that, I need to provide a product or a service that somebody else will freely choose to buy. So I have to put their needs equal to my needs in order to make the purchase, and why free enterprise has lifted people out of poverty, and nothing yet discovered has done that beyond free enterprise. And Donofus kind of sitting there like... But the thing that struck me was the part he said at the beginning. He really identified something I think is true, which is, it's never you or I that are greedy, Right? I'm not greedy, but but I've seen some greedy people. I know of some greedy people. And we live in a culture today where people are throwing the word greed around all the time. But just pause for a second, ask yourself, or or ask them, can anyone define greed? Have you ever heard a working definition of greed? And so we have a society that's obsessed with throwing this word around, but no one's ever defined it. So today we're going to try and define what greed is and recognize that most of us don't recognize it in ourselves ever, and how do we really wrestle with that? Let's start with Plato's definition. When Plato was talking about greed and the role it played in society, here's how he defined it. The insatiable desire to have what rightfully belongs to others. It's insatiable. It's never enough. Almost connects it to the idea of envy here. Greed and envy almost go hand in hand. Although we'll talk a little bit more about that next week with Envy. There's a Bible commentator looking at all the teachings of the Bible on this concept, and he defined greed this way. Another fascinating sort of insight into it. Ruthless, self-seeking, and an arrogant assumption that others and things exist for one's own benefit. Wow, more of an attitude, a proud arrogance to, to how you approach business and how you approach life. Now, Jesus gives us a definition, and it is fascinating. Jesus says, take heed and beware of covetousness. And that's sometimes translated into greed, sometimes covetousness. And he says, "Be, be, be warning, danger, danger, danger. Take heed, be careful of covetousness, of greed. Another way it says is beware of the very faces of greed, because, he says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now isn't that a fascinating definition of greed? When you think your life is about what you possess. So greed in Jesus' terms, I would like to wrestle with this morning, is when what I possess is the definition of my life's success. Well, if that's true... That what I possess becomes the definition of my life's success. Then what Jesus said in another translation is beware of the many faces, all kinds of greed. Which means greed has a thousand faces. There's all kinds of it. It can look like oversaving and you're a hoarder. It can look like overspending, I deserve more than I than I make. There can be low class greed where you're obsessed with what you don't have and somebody's keeping you from getting it. There can be middle class greed where you look down and say, well, you know, I worked myself for this. Those people below me on the socioeconomic line, and they just need to work harder. And you can look up at people above you in line and say, you know, glad I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Must be nice. But it's an all obsession with things. What I possess is the definition of my life success. I am what I have, or I have what I don't yet have. Is it the obsession, I will be happy when I have one more car or, or, or one more house or a house that looks a bit nicer in a different location? Nothing with wanting these things. When they become the definition of your success, greed may be at work. Now, Even in Jesus' day, there were some parables that were well told, children's stories. Like we might have mother's goose. They had Aesop's fables. Aesop tells this great story about a dog. And this dog one day has a giant steak in his mouth, just delicious. And he's walking over a bridge. He's walking over the bridge. He just looks over and he sees another dog looking up at him. And that dog has a steak in his mouth. He begins to growl at the dog. Arr. And the other dog growls back. Arr. He growls louder. Arr. The other dog growls louder. Arr. Finally he decides, this delicious steak I have am about to eat, I need that steak as well. That belongs to me. I deserve that. I need to show him. And so that dog goes from growling to barking, and the steak tumbles out, and it hits the other dog and his steak, and that dog disappears as the steak sinks to the bottom of the stream. He'd been barking at his own reflection. And by wanting the other steak and not enjoying his own steak, he lost both. What's so fascinating about that story from Aesop's Fables is, at no time did the dog recognize himself in the mirror. At no time did the dog recognize greed in the mirror. And I think that's why Jesus says, Beware! Take heed! Be really careful with this one! Because no one recognizes greed in the mirror. And because we don't recognize greed in the mirror, we're going to have to learn how to recognize its voice. I've never had anyone, 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 ever come into my office and say, I'm really struggling with greed, can you help me? Stress, anxiety, marriage, habits, but never greed, because it's so subtle. So I want to tell you a story today of a very untraveled passage in the Bible, a man by the name of Nabal. I want you to tell the story, and then we're going to look at three sayings that come out of his heart, that I think you and I might recognize come out of us, and we can begin to listen and hear the the voice of greed speaking to us, telling us to define our life by what we possess. Now, to do that, a man's name is Nabal. I don't know that he looks like this, but this is how I picture him. And I want to tell you the story of Nabal from the Bible, so in character for a moment, and and so we get a sense of the story, and then we're going to look at the sayings together.
2: I imagine he sounds something like this. My name is Nabal. I built this business with my own two hands. Have you seen my sheep? Oh, I live here in own here in Carmel, but I work this, this shepherds and sheep and I'm up to, let's see, 1,111, 2,000, 1, 2,998, 2,999, 3,000 sheep. 3,000 I have. Have you seen my goats? <laughs> 1,145, 1,992, 2,998, 2,999. Ah! One born this morning. (laughs) 3,000 goats. I built this business with my own two hands, the sweat of my own brow. Worked it to get to 3,000 of each. One day, one of my servants came to me and said, on the ball,
1: there's a man with many men And he's asked me to come to you and ask, he and his men have not had anything to eat. Would you be willing to provide for him? Now this man, he has not taken anything from us. In fact, he's protected us from many of the thieves and robbers who've tried to steal of your flock. He's protected us as shepherds. His name is David. And because it's a feast day, and and on feast day we show hospitality to those around us, he asks if you would be willing to show hospitality to he and his men.
2: Show hospitality to someone I've never heard of. I work and slave to build my own flocks and he just wants a handout. Huh. Shall I give my bread and my water and my meat that I have sheared from my flock to someone I've never heard of? No, You tell him to find his own meat and his own water and his own bread.
1: Nabal. Now, the news makes its way back to David. David is so enraged at the lack of hospitality, so enraged that he has never taken anything. In fact, he's protected this man's property. And on a Jewish feast day, and in that culture, Jewish feasts were a big deal. This particular Jewish feast day, it was customary of everybody in the world, almost like Christmas. It was a time of giving to the stranger, giving to those around you. So the idea that Nabal on Jewish Christmas won't even provide for what what was customary in the culture, David is there with 400 men who are mercenaries. Mercenaries. They have killed tens of thousands in war and battle for Israel and in Gath, and the Philistines hired him for a while. He basically turns to the 400 men and says, I am never going to be treated like this. Guys, grab your sword. That man's going to be dead tonight. We'll hold the story there. Now, when you think of Nabal, I think like other areas of greed, you're like, whew, i met a guy like that. i met a woman like that. I worked for somebody like that. But there's none of that in me. Oh, my goodness. I would never do that. I would never act like that. I would never say that. Because we never see greed in the mirror. But I want you to try and hear three of Nabal's sayings. And in those sayings, I think if you're like me, you're going to hear the voice of greed speaking to you and I as well. The first voice we're going to hear is is the, really the belief that I am what I have. Remember, Jesus says, when my life's success is defined by what I possess. Well, he worked that number up to 3,000. He was very, very rich, very, very fluent, but he had defined himself by that 3,000 number i got 3,000 sheep and i got 3,000 goats. And if I gave it away, I'd be under the number. Have you ever heard the voice that says, I am what I possess? There's some number. The number of clients, the size of your territory, the number of homes, the number in your savings accounts. There's some number that you've made more than just a number. You've made it the definition of who you are. And one of the things that comes out of you when that begins to operate in the, in the background of your life, is I treat things better than I treat people. I begin to love things and use people instead of using things and loving people. The Bible tells us that he was very, very wealthy, and yet he's got 3,000 sheep, 3,000 goats, and yet he's got this, this wife named Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding, beautiful appearance, but this man was harsh and evil in his doings. And he treats those sheep and goats like woof. And when you have greed going, especially if you have a a perfectionistic tendency, nothing wrong with taking care of good stuff. But you find yourself getting so irritated when people don't wash the car the right way or they touch something that's yours or they get into that. So much so that you will scream at, yell at, bark at your kids or your spouse that you say you love because of how much you treat your stuff. You wouldn't call yourself greedy. You'd call yourself prudent, responsible, a good manager. But I really want you to wrestle with, when I am what I have, I treat things better than I treat people. I'm harsh in my dealings. I remember several years ago, one of my good friends of mine asked me to go down to Destin. So we went down to Destin, and while we're there, we're at this beautiful condo. And we're at this condo just enjoying the beach and having some shrimp and just having a great time, just really enjoying ourselves. And I picked up this book I hadn't read in years. It's uh, called by Richard Foster. It's about spiritual disciplines. I'm reading this particular discipline about simplicity. And while I'm reading about simplicity, we get into a conversation, enjoying the beach, enjoying the sun. He looks at me and he says, you know, wouldn't it be great to own something like this? I said, man, I sure would. Imagine if we just come down here all the time, three or four times in a year and, and more than that, and you can manage it. And if you manage it, you can make money and pay for itself. And for the next two days, we talked about owning this lake out, or this, this uh, house, condo on the beach. Two days on the beach, we talked about owning something on the beach, obsessed with the next time we'll be here or the next time we'll be here. And what I realized, I was missing out on the time at the beach because I was thinking about owning something on the beach. And, and at the same time, I was reading this book, and one day I was in chapter on simplicity. It said, Simplicity is the ability. To enjoy things without owning them, how often do we, instead of just enjoying something for what it is, we gotta own it? Of course, then you own it, right? You got all the management responsibilities, all the extra stress, something else to manage, something else to juggle, and you're like, oh my goodness, look at all the things we're trying to tweak, and you're like, I just pictured myself magically coming down here, never have to clean this thing, never have renter issues, never, 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 right? Greed doesn't allow you to just enjoy things. You've always got to own things because my life is what I possess. Now, the second thing we see coming out of Nabal, or the second saying, is not just I, I am what I possess, but I earned everything I have. Now, this has got so much truth to it that it makes it hard to see the nugget of a lie in the middle. I earned everything I own. Nabal would say. And he did. I don't doubt that he started the small flock. I don't doubt that he developed it. I don't doubt he was a smart, shrewd businessman. And I don't doubt you are as well. We earned an awful lot of what we own. And so the subtext of this is that it's an inability to be thankful for what you have, but also to recognize who helped you get here. In the name of I did it myself, I earned everything I own myself, you miss out on all the ways in which people gave you stuff that helped you get here, which brings humility. For example, did you give yourself life? Even if you don't believe in God, I would say God gave you your life, but certainly at least I wouldn't be here without mom and dad. How'd you get that first job? Where'd you get that training? Wasn't there somebody who gave you a break And that first job? Sure, you worked hard, sure, you developed it, but didn't somebody have to give you an opportunity or give you a break? Didn't somebody invest in you, believe in you, right? And yet somewhere along the way, you went from, look at all the ways I've been blessed, all the ways people invested in me so I could get where I am, to a belief of, no, no, I earned by myself everything I have by myself. And Nabal is the same way. Nabal is shocked, flabbergasted, that some nobody out in his field who's never done anything for him would think that he, on a feast day, could have one of his sheep or knock his number 3,000 down to 2,999. But even his servant comes to him and says, Nabal, these men who are requesting something on feast day, they were like a wall to us, both day and night. There's robbers out there, there's thieves out there, there's wolves out there trying to kill your flock. And David and his men who don't know us, they just happened to be camping out there. They were a wall. They, they protected our life, your assets, your resources, your, your company, your employees, and they protected what you own. And so what you think you've earned everything you have, but actually you would have lost a lot of what you had if it wasn't for this man and his men protecting us. But there's this basic belief. It's a religious belief, but it shows up in a lot of ways. And it goes like this. If I do good, I will do well. That is often true, not always true, but it's often a good rule of thumb. If I do good, I will do well. And if I've done well, and may have done very well. It must be because I did good. And the emphasis becomes, I did it all myself. I made this myself. But again, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, imagine if you had not been born in America. I certainly gave you... Opportunities that others wouldn't. Imagine you weren't born in the 20th century, 21st century. Imagine you were born during the time of the bubonic pay, plague. You think that would affect? You think there's some, some environments that have allowed you to be prosperous? That Maybe you've worked hard for everything you have, but maybe there's other environments you could be more grateful for thankful for. Well, Nabal's having none of it. No, no. Everything I did is because I did it well. Remember that song from The Sound of Music where the the two are falling in love and she says, uh, oh, how did I find a man like this? And how did I find a woman like this? I must have done something well. It's that belief that everything I have is because of me, which feeds pride into that greed that I earned everything I own. Therefore, how dare someone ask or presume or request that I would give of what I have. There's a third saying. The third saying from Nabal is this idea that it all belongs to me. That I deserve, it's not just that I worked for it, I deserve everything I possess. So it starts off with, I am what I possess, then it's I worked for everything I possess, and then it's I deserve everything I possess. And if you listen real carefully, you start feeling an unhealthy Repetitious focus on self in the way you talk. I can be so convicted by this. Look at how many times he uses the word I, me, or mine in this phrase. Flabbergasted David White thing. Shall I take my bread, my water,
2: my meat that I killed from? My shears from my flocks. Me, 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 me. He's
1: an opera singer. Me, 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 me. me. It's his self, me, all over the place. Yet have you ever noticed that with everything going on in the world, how obsessed we can be just with ourselves? Well, I deserve that. I've really worked hard, so I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And that propels this idea of lack of contentment, lack of gratitude, and distorting perspective. When I first started working here 15 years ago, I have a performance plan that I work on with the elders. So part of that is every year we go over you know, what sort of my criteria are, what we're trying to accomplish. One of the things they brought to my attention 15 years ago is, Chad, do you realize when you tell stories, you have a tendency to reference them with a lot of I, And when you talk to the church, instead of talking about the team or the, all the different things that go into what we do as a church, you have a tendency to use the word I a lot. I actually was not aware of it. In fact, sometimes as a storyteller, you want to personalize the stories to make them more real. So just telling a story, hey, I read a book, this is what the book meant to me, and let me tell you the story about the book. But it was so helpful to have people who cared about me, who said, hey, you might want to bring attention to this. Be careful of the, the language. You want to make sure that what's in your heart, we know what's in your heart, gets communicated, that this is a team effort, that you believe that we're all in this, which of course I did. But I need somebody to help me see or even hear what I didn't hear I was doing. I told you no one's ever come into my office to say they struggle with greed, but I had someone close a couple years ago. It was a friend of mine. He's become a good friend of mine. He said, Chad, you did this message a few months ago talking about defining yourself by what you own. And as I began to think about that message, I realized I own a lot. And there's some things that I really love they and a hobby of mine, and they became a definition of who I am. And you think of all the times I've moved them from location to location, make sure they're insured, make sure they're reinsured, all the all the extra bureaucracy I've brought in my life to, to keep this thing I don't even use because it's been so important to me. And I realized I, I need to be free of that. It's not like I needed the money. I just needed freedom. So we're sitting up in one of the uh, skyboxes and he's talking to He goes, I was just really motivated that that particular thing is something I, I want to find freedom from. So I sold it all. You sold all of it? Yeah. Don't have to insure it anymore. Don't have to store it anymore. Freedom. He said, you know, I've never thought of myself as a not generous person, but I've been amazed as I've been reading the Bible and I've been wrestling with, with God's work in my life. I just felt like God wanted me to, to write some checks to thank the people who invested in me. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. He said, here's a check. And he wrote this you know, pretty significant check uh, to the church and said, but this is my way of just saying thanks for investing in me and helping me find freedom. He said, I wrote, a school, I wrote a check to my old grade school. Grade school? Yeah, I just realized there's some teachers who really invested in me as a kid. And, and I wanted them to know how much I appreciate the work they've done. And I'm sure they're under-resourced. And, and this is a chance for me to give back. And, and he talked about another area he was, giving. I was just It was so exciting to see someone talk about giving and freedom in a way that was so organic. No longer I deserve everything I have Focus on me, but the joy that comes from focusing on others. Now, back to Nabal, because the story is fascinating. Here are these three phrases, three sayings that are at work in his heart. Now, when the news gets back to David, he's ready to kill him. And so David and his 400 mercenaries are on their way, marching across the land to go and destroy him. Now, Nabal, he sees himself as the king of his castle that he built, and he did a lot of work. He's a smart guy. But as Nabal has built this castle... And he has gotten to his magic number of 3,000 sheep and 3,000 goats. He has lost everything that matters. And often in pursuing some number, we lose the things we really care about. First, he loses the respect of his employees. Because the employees find out that David's about to kill him because he was so disrespectful. So the employees run to his wife, Abigail, the wise, smart one, remember? And they say, oh my goodness, David is going to come and kill us all for what he did. And look, what he, look at the speech that the employee gives. The, one of the young men told Abigail and Nabal's wife, harm is determined against our master and probably against this whole household. For he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. Wouldn't you love all your employees to be talking behind your back that way? Hey, when you think of your boss, what do you think? Uh, Definitely a scoundrel and, you know, honestly, no one can speak to him. But many of us are such poor leaders and such poor listeners as leaders. And if you don't listen as a leader, you will eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say. Good people will leave. Because if you're not a good listener as a leader, you will eventually not have anyone around you with anything to say. Because they don't respect you. They know you don't care about their opinion. You don't want their opinion. So they're going to leave and go someplace else. And so though he may have his 3,000 sheep and 3,000 goats, he doesn't have the respect of his employees. You know, when I think of my boss, I think scoundrel. He also doesn't have the respect of his spouse. So she hears this, oh my goodness, we're all in danger because of what my husband did. So Abigail makes a big meal. We'll talk about that in a moment. She runs and catches David midway, sword drawn on his way to come kill her husband. And she says, please, she falls down in humility and respect, please, let not my Lord, she's talking, it's kind of a way of saying sir in those days, sir, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. So not only does his employees think he's a scoundrel, his wife thinks he's a scoundrel. He's lost any type of marriage that he once set out to be or wanted or thriving. And she goes on. She says, For his name is, so is he. So do not regard the scoundrel Nabal. I'll tell you what his name means in just a second because she tells us. For as his name is, his name tells you what he acts like, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal must have had some really lousy parents because his name Nabal literally means foolish. Can you imagine? Hey, we're going through the 10,001 names. Hey, honey, how about foolish? That sounds good. Let's name our boy foolish. <laughs> but his name is Nabal, meaning foolish, and she says to David, please don't kill him. Is he being foolish Yes. Is he scoundrel? Yep, yep, I'd live with him. Trust me, I know. Please don't kill him. Well, that night, and I'll finish that part of the story in a second, he gets married with wine. Ha,
2: ha, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm the king of my castle. Ha, <laughs> <laughs> ha.
1: He gets married with wine. And that night, it says he has a heart attack. In the morning when the wine had gone from the ball, his heart died within him and he became like a stone. And in the pursuit of a number, he lost the respect of the people around him, his family, his spouse, and ultimately his health. And how many of us, if we're really honest, would say we made some number the most important thing. And in the pursuit of that number, we have stressed ourselves out with all the things we're managing now. We don't even enjoy the things we own because they're owning us. How many of us have ulcers because we're so worried about whether we're going to lose the value of X, Y, and Z that was so important for us to own? Our health, which is vital, right? If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. We destroy that in the pursuit of a number of something we must have, must deserve, have worked for. Now, here's the incredible irony of this story. Let me show you a map. Though Nabal is king of his castle, let me show you where he resides. He mentioned uh, he lived in Maon or Carmel. So if you look at Israel, this is during the time of the reign of King Saul. Everything in blue is the area that is within the reign of the kingdom of King Saul, the first king of Israel. So you'll notice that this man lives right in the center. His castle is right in the middle of somebody else's kingdom. Now, Saul has disobeyed God many, many times, and how they picked a leader in those days is that God would tell the prophet to go and appoint a new leader. So Saul has disobeyed God, and so Samuel has gone years before this, poured oil over David, and said, David, you are now God's new king. So even though Saul's the reigning king, in God's eyes, David is the king of the kingdom. Which means Nabal's castle that he's so proud of actually sits in the middle of David's kingdom. So much so that Abigail gives this brilliant speech, because he's about to kill him. She says, begging him, Hey, I know my husband's been a scoundrel. Look what she says. But when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, she knows he's the king. She knows he's the coming king. She knows right now he could take control over all the land as the king. He's already been anointed. It's common knowledge. This man wrote songs that everyone knew. This man was a war hero. This man married the king's daughter. If that's true, then how does everyone know that except Nabal? Because Nabal's world is only as big as Nabal. He has no idea that he is rejecting the king of the kingdom he lives in. And Abigail, I'm going to talk more about this in about eight weeks in a series we're doing on marriage. But here's a real teaser for it. Abigail says to David, I know you're going to be the king. And you do not want years from now when you're the king to have on your conscience that in an angry, disrespected moment you killed somebody in cold blood. And David is able to catch himself and go, oh my goodness. Man, what was I thinking? And he's so grateful to Abigail who catches him from in his anger doing something stupid. Back to the point. David is the opposite of Nabal. Where Nabal is all about keeping stuff, keeping stuff, keeping stuff, keeping stuff, getting everything that's his. David could at any time have taken over the kingdom at any time could say, I'm the rightful kingdom, i got an army, i got 400 mercenaries, we're taking over. Spirit's already anointed me. David instead his whole life said, I'm going to wait for God's timing. I don't need to grab everything that's mine yet. I don't have to have everything I've deserved as God's given to me yet. So here's a man, that's why God calls him man after his own heart. He is a king who's not obsessed with making sure he gets everything that's his. And this humble king, already could own everything is requesting that this man who lives in his kingdom give just a little piece of what he has to the coming king and here we see a picture of not only king david but one of his descendants a son of david named jesus because jesus who says he's the king of all heaven and all earth and a cattle and a thousand hills and all the universe will come to earth and he won't come to earth and say hey i'm the king serve me Instead, he will continually say, I came to serve, not to be served. I'm not obsessed with grabbing all my power and getting what's mine. I gave up a lot of what was mine. And I came here to serve and give and be generous to others. Now, this is a different kind of king. But when you realize that even though you may be king of your castle, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt you worked hard for it. And you're proud of it. I'm proud of it for you. And I hope your, king, your castle gets bigger. But when you realize that you're castle, king of your castle, queen of your castle. But when you begin to recognize that your castle resides in somebody else's kingdom, it changes how you live. And Abigail, part of her petition to David is she has just made a huge dinner. She went back and cooked. She, go to the next passage. Yeah, she's, look at what she's made. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread. I mean, this is like super cook show here. She had two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed. Oh, my goodness. The number's gone down from 3,000 to 2,995. Five uh, sears of uh, roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. I mean, she's got the donkeys. Come on! <laughs> Falls before the king. He says, we may be king of our castle, but we, I recognize that our castle rests in your kingdom. And I want to show generosity to the king. And it's not just a little generosity, lavish generosity. We owe our life to you. We owe our livelihood to you. We owe everything the very breath that we have. Because if you do what you want to do based on how my husband treated you, we're going to lose our life tonight. And it's an incredible act of generosity. that is why as you wrestle with the self-portrait of greed, God made the only remedy for greed is generosity. Because generosity uniquely saves you from either overspending or over-saving. And in marriage, almost always a saver marries a spender. And they both see the other person as greedy. If you'd stop spending so much, we'd have some money. Well, if you'd stop having to to always save so much, we'd have some money. When was it ever going to be enough? God designed giving to be the unique discipline or pattern or habit that saves you from one, you could always upgrade more. You'll always, you'll never be happy. You can always upgrade. Nothing wrong with upgrading, by the way. But you can always upgrade more. It's insatiable. And by saying, I'm going to put a percentage of my my money into giving to others, it forces me to focus on others. When it's a percentage of your income, it reminds you I'm giving away 1% of, 2% of, 5% of X. That X is, look at all the X God has given to me. Look at what he's entrusted to me, living in this time, in this place. And so percentage giving, priority giving, progressively giving. One, it reminds you that you can always upgrade, but in focusing on yourself, there's also a place to give to others and and to give back to God to realign your heart. But if you're over saver, you've got some number. Oh, it's not the 3,000 horses or the sheep But you got some number, if I could just get to a million, then I'd know for sure that our retirement's set. Then you get to a million and you're like, well, who knows what the economy's going to do. Let's go for 1.5. And you get to that certain salary, you say, if I could just make this amount of money. Well, then we might as well get another house. Oh, not quite as much margin. Well, maybe I'll work and have a little more margin. Look at all the things we're going to do as a family in those places. There is no number in your savings account that will make you feel secure. Now, there's some numbers that are better than others, no doubt. But there's no number that will ultimately satisfy or can protect you from uncertainty. And so giving is something God put in place to say, God, I, I'm being wise, I'm investing wisely, I'm saving wisely for the future. But ultimately, you are the source of my security, not the number. And it will untangle you from over-saving, what we know is hoarding, one of the faces of greed. It will also untangle you from overspending, which is insatiable as well when you say, God, I want my giving to be a way to align my heart to you and the ways you're working around me. And in doing so, we can avoid being the very thing we don't want to be, which is in the ball. So listen for those three voices this week. The three things that make me feel like I'm the king of my castle. I deserve what I have. I am what I have. I work for every single thing I have. Versus seeing that it's all in a gift from God. Let's pray and then I want to talk to you about some generosity we want to give to you and your friends. Father, thanks so much for uh, just this incredibly um, hilarious and funny and difficult and unique story in the Bible. Help us see in the mirror the pieces of Nabal, the voice of Nabal, that we can be people who live incredibly lavish, happy, generous, content lives connected to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we leave today, I want to give you a, 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 a... We've been doing this thing for three or four years. It's one of the ways that we, we thank our volunteers. It's all, also a way that we really thank those in the community for something to bring your friends to. Maybe you've got some friends who are like, Hey, they're not going to come to a church service. They think something weird's going to happen. So instead, this sort of a before you go to church service, we do a every year fireworks display out on our lake. So if you've never come to that or brought your friends to that, it is fantastic for kids, for grandkids. Uh, this year, Kaboom is what we call it. Kaboom, because Rosy actually does our fireworks. The fun-filled evening will take place Saturday, August 18th from 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Because the fireworks happen at dusk. It's going to include a dazzling Rosy fireworks display right over the uh, Horizon Pond. Yummy ice cream, Sunday bar, refreshments for all to enjoy. A performance by our E-Station, that's K-4th through grade worship team. If you have not seen this before, because a lot of us are in here, you know, we get to see the kids. We have an incredible children's program that does their own music and their own dances, and they actually do a performance of that before the fireworks. Kaboom offers a great opportunity to connect and meet other families at Horizon, meet people you haven't met before in an environment where you can chat for a couple hours. I encourage you to bring some friends so they, too, can experience some of Horizon has to offer. Now, complimentary tickets are available right at the registration decks. As you go out, turn left, you'll see a big Kaboom over by the fireplace, bring lawn chairs and a blanket to watch the Rosy fireworks. The Horizon team looks forward to seeing you there. So we would love, again, to just be generous to you but also to your friends and saying that this is a place that we celebrate what God is doing. Let me pray and we'll call it a day. Father, thanks again for uh, this day, and thanks again for developing in us the heart that is in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you all next week as we finish the
2: series.